in Antioch, and this church in Antioch became the hotbed of missions and evangelism throughout the book of Acts. It became the church out of which Paul went out on his missionary journeys and came back to report, the church in Antioch. And this church in Antioch changed the world. We deserve our existence, or we have our existence, because of the church in Antioch and the kinds of things that they did as a church way back then, 2,000 years ago. And that's because they had a certain DNA. They had a missional or evangelizing DNA. And so I want us to look at this church this morning and try to see what is the DNA that gives a church this kind of impact on its community. The church in Antioch illustrates the DNA of an evangelizing kind of church. And there's five things that I notice about this church, and I think they're all necessary for any church to impact its community. And so I want us to just go through the verses and notice them one after another. And the first thing about this church was that the gospel was spoken NMW. Let me read verses 19 and 20. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, back in chapter 7 there, in chapter 8 they ran for their lives because there was a persecution. Um, when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> you know, when um, I was dating my wife in Bible college, um, she got some bad news one, one day. Her sister, who was um, a little older and married, um, reported that her husband had left her for another woman. And as Elsie and I were talking, I could just see on her face just how this shocked her and um, just turned her world upside down. And so after that, I started to sign my little letters to her, I-L-Y-N-M-W. I love you no matter what. I didn't want her to be afraid that if she did something I didn't like, that was it. I was out of here. I love you, NMW. And these people spoke the gospel no matter what. They were under pressure not to share the gospel with other people. I mean, they were running for their lives because they were hated for this message about Jesus. And they just kept right on talking about Jesus anyway. The Greeks, by the way, had their own religious beliefs and their own gods, and sharing Jesus would often not be welcomed. But they spoke about Jesus no matter what. And I want you to notice that when they spoke, they spoke in terms that the people could understand. And so they didn't go around, you'll notice, preaching the good news about Christ Jesus. They went around preaching the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, why was that? Well, Gentiles didn't think in terms of a Christ, of a Messiah, but they did think in terms of a Lord. They called their gods Lord. And as the Christians went out among the Gentiles, they said, oh no, Jesus is Lord, and you should hear what he's done for you. That's how they shared the gospel with people. And I want you to notice two things about this. The men who went to Antioch, what are their names? We don't know their names. 
They're a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> Their names aren't in the Bible. This is the first time that we read in detail how people who are not apostles or prophets evangelized. And notice they had no plan. They had no program. They had no budget. They just loved people and loved the Lord, and they talked to people about the Lord. This church that had such an impact got started because a lot of so-called nobodies witnessed to their families and friends. Now, they knew the gospel. They shared the gospel. They knew what the good news was. They knew why the Lord Jesus was good news to their friends. Do you know why Jesus is good news to your friends and families? Why they really need Jesus? Why he can make such a difference in their lives. Why is Jesus good news for the people around you? They all have their reasons. You know, maybe they're afraid of the future. You know, if you come to God and you become a child of God, you know that the king of the universe controls the future and he loves you. That's good news. You can become a child of God. Everybody has a reason for needing a savior. They knew what the people needed for good news. Now, I think this passage is really important because we have this kind of a celebrity mentality in our culture. We have this sort of specialist mentality, and only celebrities and only specialists can do the really important things. But these are a bunch of unnamed people who did this amazing thing. They started the church that changed the world. And so we tend to excuse people from sharing the gospel message because, well, that, that's the pastor's job. or You know, that's the evangelist's job. But everybody there knew how to share the good news. And they all did it. They just went around talking about Jesus and why he was good news. So let's pray this. Let's pray, Lord Jesus, I will learn the gospel and I will learn why it's good news for people and then I'll tell them why it's good news for people. There's a good lesson for us. Now, how were these ordinary people successful? And you find that in verse 21. God's power was present. We read in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And, you know, as you go through the book of Acts, one of the things that Luke, the writer of Acts, keeps on emphasizing is God's role in the conversion of other people. For example, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 8, Jesus says to them, before you go on your mission, you need to wait. You need to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because then you'll have power. So don't start. Wait till you have the Spirit's power. Or, for example, in, G in John chapter 3, the Gospels also talk about this where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says to Nicodemus, oh, Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you have this inward renewal and cleansing by the Spirit of God. You need the power of God. Or in Titus 3.5, we read, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We can only see, see people saved by divine, supernatural power. We need that for people to come to faith. No one comes to faith apart from a powerful work of God on their hearts and on their minds. And they had it. John Stott says something 
that I think is worth repeating. He said, we have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. When we think that we can bring people to faith by our own gimmicks and by our own efforts and by our slick programs, and when we rely more on planning than on praying, we need to repent. We can't do it without power. God has to be involved, and God was involved with this church. In fact, later on, when, in chapter 13, when they send out their first missionaries in verse 3, we read, so after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Why did they fast and pray? Because they knew they needed power. They needed God to do something. So let's pray. Let's pray for power, that God would put his hand upon us and change lives. Everything is better when God is in it. They had power. They had the hand of God working with them. So the DNA of this church was the gospel was spoken constantly. God's power was presence. And then thirdly, I notice in verses 22 to 24, guidance was welcomed. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, what was the role of the church leaders in this mission? The church leaders back in Jerusalem, what was their role? And once again, we find out that the church leaders didn't start this. They didn't program this. They didn't initiate this. Other people initiated it. But as God led people into ministry, they came alongside to oversee it, to make sure that it wasn't going off the rails, and to support it. In other words, God speaks to directly to people like you and me, and he'll inspire us to do a ministry. We don't have to wait till the leaders ask us to do something. We don't have to ask them to tell us exactly how to do it. Their role is to come alongside and encourage and support and give oversight to it. But you don't need to wait for a church program to be a minister. But God is a God of order, isn't he? And he always provides for order in the church. There's this spontaneity, but then there's also this sense of order in the church. And so even though the church of Antioch was going to become much better at evangelism and mission than the Jerusalem church, they still welcomed the guidance. You know, they didn't take the attitude of independent Baptists. We don't need anybody else. <laughs> Uh, they didn't say, wait a second here, we got this going without your help. Why are you interfering? Why are you coming alongside now and trying to steer how things go? They didn't take that attitude. And you know, sometimes when people do get a ministry going, and then the church leadership comes alongside to support, maybe to steer it a little bit, their attitude is, wait a second, we started this Bible study. Why do you want to know what we're studying? Who are you? They didn't have that attitude. They had the DNA of a missional church. They were a church of order. And so the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to ensure quality control because God wants to give order to a church. He provides for that. And it's a good thing that they accepted that. Barnabas totally changed what happened in that town. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts, 
He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So first of all, we read that he encouraged them, and then he and Saul guided them. We read that in the next couple of verses. That's how we know that they were a church who were willing to receive guidance. They spent a year sitting at the feet of Paul and Barnabas, being trained and taught by them. They were willing to re receive uh, guidance. Now, Barnabas was sent to Antioch because he was trusted by the leaders, by the apostles in Jerusalem. He was a good man. He was full of God in his life. He could be trusted to represent what the apostles taught to that church in Antioch. And so they sent him. They didn't go themselves. They sent Barnabas to make sure things stayed within their teaching. And, you know, in a true sense, we are all under the guidance of the apostles through the people he sends to us. There's lots of Barnabases in the church today. And I want you to listen to his encouragement. He said, continue being true to the Lord. In other words, he says to them, no matter what you face, keep trusting his promises and obeying his commands. That's what you need to keep doing. Just keep trusting his promises, obey what he says. You'll be good then if you just do those things. Do it with total devotion. So let's you and I pray, Lord, Help us to be people willing to be guided. Let's be willing to be guided by God. And so this church was healthy and it was evangelistic because the gospel was spoken, because power was presence, because guidance was welcome, and because teaching was foundational. Look at verses 25 and 26. We read, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And, you know, I don't think all these Christians, they sat through classes from 9 to 5, you know, 5 or 7 days a week. They were working people like anyone else. They were family people like anyone else. Most likely, they spent a lot of Sunday together just learning what God had said in His Word. And quite likely, throughout the week, they had these various meetings and opportunities for learning. But these were people who were always wanting to learn what God said. And I want you to notice that teaching the Bible was so important that Barnabas left the work there, traveled a good distance to find the best Bible teacher he could find, and he brought him back. And then they concentrated on teaching for a whole year. And teaching is still so important today. We will not grow spiritually, and we will not be robust in evangelism without learning the solid content of the Bible. When I was in Colombia getting to um, know some of the Christians there, our, our denomination started a mission to Colombia, went through all those um, drug, uh, drug years when, what was his name? Um, 
Escobar, Pablo Escobar, was uh, murdering, murdered 500 police officers and so on and so forth. Many of those people remember seeing people dead on the street, uh, just in Medellin. Anyway, when I was there, one of the things that really struck me, and uh, the missionary, one of the missionaries who had spent 30 years there, he said, well, you're going there to help them, but they do a lot of things better than we do here in Canada. One of the things they do really well, they are always teaching their people. They always have these seminars going on, and the people come. They want to learn. That's what's happening here in this church. Teaching was so important. And you see this kind of emphasis in the book of Acts. For example, back in Acts chapter 6, the apostles, who are the primary teachers of the church, they're under great pressure to look after a very important social need in that culture, one of the top social concerns in that culture, the care of widows. And the widows weren't getting cared for well enough. And the, the apostles were pressured to give their time and devotion to that. And they said, no, you find people to do that we're going to dedicate ourselves to two things, prayer and the ministry of the Word. Those are the two things. So important. In 1 Timothy 3, there's a list of requirements for church leaders who are called elders. And all of those qualities that an elder must have are all character things. Common character things. Be faithful to your wife, not a drunken person, that kind of stuff. But one thing. One skill, one ability they must have, an elder, the ability to teach. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll all do it formally, but an elder is to be a person who is in the Word of God, who knows the Word of God, who reflects on the Word of God, who is able to bring the Word of God into life circumstances as he mingles with people. Not only is he able to do it, but he does it. He's always referencing the Word of God because he knows the Word of God. Listen, if you are ever asked to be an elder and you're not a reader of the God's Word and you don't have a habit of bringing God's Word to bear on life circumstances, say no. An elder has to be that kind of person. And elders, you who appoint or invite people to be an elder, don't you dare ask somebody to be an elder who does not have this ability to teach God's Word. It is so central. They must be students of the Word. They must love the Word. They must be able to bring it into people's marriages and into the decisions of life. They must, they must, they must. These are not maybes. They are musts, Paul says. They must be able to teach. They don't have to lead a, an official Sunday school class. They don't have to preach on a Sunday morning. They have to be lovers of the Word. They have to know it and apply it. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. In other words, in an eldership, they all have an ability to teach. They all are overseers of the church, but some of them especially are devoted to preaching and teaching. And it's very important. So if we want to be people who can go out and evangelize, we must embrace the importance of intense, sound teaching. Not just an interest in being made to feel good <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Not just looking for a little boost in our week, but looking to understand God's Word and how to live it. 
That's the kind of church we have to be if we want to be a missional church, if we want to be like the church in Antioch. And, you know, there's a hint of what they focused on in these verses here. We read uh, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's the first time they were called Christians. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, th what that tells you? It tells you something. Um, we read about the followers of Herod, you know, the, this king of Judea. Uh, that he had certain fans, right? And his fans were called Herodians. Christians were called Christians because they, they weren't quite Jewish to the people, and they weren't pagans. What they were really all about was Christ. And so that's what they talked about all the time, Christ. Everything centered on Christ. So they were Christians, Christ ones. They followed Christ. They habitually talked about Christ. That's what their teaching was all about. It all came back to Christ. So they were Christians. Then the fifth thing I noticed about this church is that fellowship was practiced. You see it in verses 27 to 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. I believe that was about 58 A.D. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so again, these first Christians in Antioch were not independent Baptists. They, they welcomed like-minded Christians in to help them, like this prophet from Jerusalem. And they turned around and they gave, in turn, financial support back to these people in Jerusalem. In other words, they weren't an island to themselves. They didn't say, well, you do your thing over there and we'll do our thing over here. They didn't say that. They didn't hoard money for their own security. This generosity of theirs, this was an evidence of their true love for the mission of God. Wherever they saw the mission of God, they were delighted. They were in there. They were willing to support it. They didn't care only about their own mission. They didn't care about their own mission in their own backyard only. They cared about it wherever it was, wherever the mission of God was happening. They sacrificed so other churches could succeed and do well. And, you know, that's why I am glad that we support a broader fellowship. We're part of a, a fellowship of 512 churches, I think, now across Canada. They're in our budget. We support them financially. We support their mission agency. We support their relief program. I'm so glad to be part of a bigger family. We should be. We should be proud of that, glad for that. And that's why we're glad to send people like Norm overseas to help in Honduras and back in Colombia again. We're just glad to be helping wherever we can. We partner with others because that's what healthy churches do. So what do we see here in this passage? The mission of God began in Jerusalem, 
But it was the church in Antioch that had the greatest influence on the expansion of God's mission. Why was that? Well, they had a particular DNA. They were able to get past some of the biases in Jerusalem. They had the DNA of an evangelizing church. They, they spoke the gospel message no matter what. They had a spirit-given power. They, had, uh, they welcomed the guidance of others. They were willing to be trained. They taught God's word intentionally, concentrated on it, and they fellowshiped with like-minded Christians. And so that tells me that the church that will have the greatest impact on its community has to have these elements. And if it does, it will just glow. <laughs> it has to, right? If we are speaking the Word of God all over the place, if the hand of God is on us, if the power of God is with us, if other people are feeding in and influencing how we do things and helping us that way, um, if we are constantly teaching and carefully teaching the Word of God so that our people are just grounded and convinced in what the Bible says, and if we're fellowshipping with others in the broader picture, we have this generosity of heart for the mission, well, it's going to show in other ways too. That's the DNA of a missional church. And what I want to do by way of application, after we've had a couple of songs and Aaron comes up, is I want us to take time to pray together. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 1, um, when the mission of God is about to take off, uh, and as they're waiting in Jerusalem for the power that is to come, they did something. Do you remember what they did? They prayed. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. They were all there, and they were all praying together as they anticipated God doing something. So I, I want us, by way of application, not to just go ahead and go, oh, well, those were some interesting ideas. I want us to pray about those ideas. And so Aaron will lead us. If, if there are some who may have to go, you might have responsibilities, and at that time you can feel free to go. But I want the rest of us just to turn in little groups, and we'll pray about these things, speaking the gospel no matter what, having spirit-given power, welcoming guidance offered, teaching Scripture intentionally, and fellowshipping with like-minded Christians. And you can pray about one of those things that really stands out to you, or you can pray about all of them, but we're going to just pray for five to ten minutes together before we go home, as many of you as are willing and able to do that. Let's pray together, all right? Father, we thank you that as we read about how the mission of God spread across the Roman Empire in three decades, we see this church in Antioch that has such a profound impact on that mission. From this point on, they are the dominant force in your mission. You use them. And so as we look carefully at them and see what they were like, we see that they spoke the good news about Jesus no matter what, even under threat, even under rejection, in the face of other religious beliefs, they still spoke about the Lord Jesus. Father, your power, your hand was upon them. We want your power to be upon us. 
And we want to be people who speak the gospel at our workplace, in our schools, uh, with our neighbors. We want that. Father, they were intentional about learning what your word said. They, they gave their time to it. They gave their very best to it. And so we pray that you would make us a church like the church in Antioch. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.